So I wonder, what kind of things are you sure about this morning? I suppose I could ask what kind of things you're unsure about as well. And out of the two, which are you the more comfortable with? And which make you feel the most uneasy? The things you're sure about or those you're not? And are you sure about that? You know, I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of the anxiety and stress that we live with today is tied to our sense of certainty, our uncertainty, about a lot of things in our lives. Finances, relationships, our health, things that are going on in the world around us, maybe at times our own spiritual lives. And whether it's realistic or not, we might worry because we don't know what's going to happen. Or we might worry because we think we do. And so I guess we should not be too surprised if we often find ourselves being drawn towards things that we think give us a sense of certainty. You know, we want to be able to get a clear diagnosis for our symptoms or unambiguous answers to our questions or guaranteed solutions to our problems, assurances that we are going to be safe and secure and not at risk. We like to have our lives and our faith all figured out and neatly packaged. And once we think we do, we don't always appreciate it very much if somebody begins tampering with the packaging. You know, of course, the trouble is that not only does real life generally not come to us that way, it also often resists our efforts to get it to conform to our preferences and our expectations, and to fit nice and neatly into the little boxes that we've made for it, so we can get it properly sorted out and organized and under our control. Not that there's anything wrong with getting things organized and sorted and together, but rather that sometimes in our hunger for certainty, and maybe even sometimes if we were to tell the truth, our need to control things around us, we can get so invested in, or maybe even obsessed with, trying to organize or explain or package everything just the way it's supposed to be, that we may run the risk of actually missing out on significant parts of what it actually means to live those lives that we're trying so hard to package and organize just the right way. And then, if the packaging begins to fray a bit around the edges or develop leaks, or new information becomes available that suggests that maybe we need to rethink some things, we can get pretty distressed. Really distressed. Or as Jesus once observed to a bunch of people whose sense of certainty had been placed more in their packages than in what the packages held, pouring new wine into old wineskins can sometimes lead to messy outcomes and the contents getting lost in the process. I don't know, maybe you've seen that happen. It's not that certainty is a problem at all. We just need to be careful about where our certainty is placed. And while we certainly want to use good materials in the boxes that we create and the ways we go about packaging our lives, we want them to have good structural integrity. We want what we think and believe to fit into good places. 
Good packaging in the end is really not about the box, but about ensuring that what's inside gets preserved and then made available to people who really need to get at what's in those packages. Trying to keep it from getting lost and spilled out along the way. But as you know, a lot of time and emotional energy can be invested in battles over boxes. We watch it way too often. What kind of boxes belong on the shelf? How long it took to build the shelf? Who's right? Who's not? So that rather than helping people open them so they can benefit from what's inside, the contents get ignored or lost or spilled out. It's a sad kind of thing. For the past couple weeks now, we've been spending some time together in the book of Jonah. A truly amazing little prophetic book, actually, in itself. And one that gives us some rather unique and intriguing glimpses into this character by the name of Jonah. It's a prophet called by God. He's a prophet who's given a message and a task, both of which, despite his reluctance to actually carry them out, he is quite certain about. At least as far as the packaging is concerned. But strangely enough, the same prophet also seems to have a really difficult time understanding exactly what the contents are of the message. And this at least partially because he is so, so certain. He is certain, as we noticed two weeks ago, that Nineveh was far too evil a place for God to be messing around with. And so he just decides he's going to go in the opposite direction. But also, as we noticed last week, he also has become certain of something else. That God's grace could be extended even to disobedient prophets. That may have been a new thought for Jonah. It impacted him enough, apparently, to get him moving in the right direction again. A little bit of help from the fish. But apparently, he was not all that certain that this graciousness might apply to anybody else particularly to wayward Ninevites. And this because his sense of certainty and how he packaged his message was probably shaped more by his assumptions than what God was actually trying to say, which may give us some insights into some ways our own certainty can sometimes trip us up. But of course, most importantly about the book is that Jonah also gives us a truly remarkable picture of God. And that's the picture I hope will come in a little bit more into focus for us as we move on through this this morning. But to begin with, there's a couple of comments just about the book that I'd like to make. The book itself is really kind of unique. As most of you may know, the book of Jonah actually is one of a collection of books that we generally refer to as the minor prophets. We call them the minor prophets not because they are somehow less than the major prophets, but simply because the books are shorter. So they're the minor prophets. And yet, even though it's a part of this collection, Jonah is kind of unique in the other minor prophets in a couple of unique kinds of ways. One of those is that while the other minor prophets almost always begin with a time stamp, something that locates their prophecy in a certain time, in a certain place, usually within the reign of some king or another, Jonah has no time stamp. Interesting. Secondly, While the other minor prophets are mostly about the message that the prophet is giving to someone, in Jonah, the prophecy itself is much less the point, and the point seems to be much more about the story of the prophet 
both of which already help us to see that the book of Jonah is going to be somewhat unique in its class. It's not going to be like the typical minor prophet here. And in fact, it intends to focus our attention in a way that's different than the other minor prophets. You might even say that Jonah sort of breaks out of the mold. It's going to be something unique. What's more than that, those who know Hebrew a whole lot better than I do tell me that even the style and the tone of writing in Jonah is different than what you find in the other books. It only reinforces this kind of thing by doing things like this. It makes use of words with double meanings. It uses a lot of wit and humor and satire, even a bit of irony to kind of help make its point. There are puns and plays on words all through the book of Jonah. You can pick up some of this when you read it in English, but I am told that it is even more obvious if you can read it in Hebrew. And while there's all kinds of things we could say about the literary structure of the book, the point is this, that Jonah, unlike the other minor prophets, is a book that intentionally sets out to do things differently. Jonah is trying to stir things up a bit. He's turning things upside down. He's shaking things loose from their assumptions. He's trying to get us focused on what is really certain, not just the package, but what's inside the package. It is, you might say, in fact, a prophecy that in the end may be largely more about prophecy itself than the particular message in the book, and maybe even a lot about the prophets that God sends. All of which I just want to do by way of background before we now dive into chapter 3, which has landed in my basket for this morning. Because it's in chapter 3 that we finally get to hear the message that Jonah is to deliver to Nineveh. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to go with me there. If you don't, you might find one in the pew in front of you. To Jonah, chapter 3, and we'll pick up the narrative here beginning with verse 1. Jonah 3, verse 1 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. Now, already here in verse 2, we get our first expectation-jarring surprise in the book. God makes reference not to the evil city of Nineveh, not to the corrupt city of Nineveh, not even to the brutally cruel city of Nineveh, all of which, as Pastor John pointed out to us graphically two weeks ago, would have been very appropriate ways to describe Nineveh, but to the great city of Nineveh. What is clear in the Hebrew here is that this is a statement that's made from God's perspective, that despite all the horrible things that had gone wrong in Nineveh, which if you have any doubts about, you can read Nahum's prophecy, where he goes into great detail about what had gone wrong in Nineveh. God still, in spite of all of that, has great hope for this city. It was a place that God valued. God cared about the city of Nineveh. This would have been shocking. And although it takes a storm and a fish and an amazingly patient God to finally get him there, we read in verse 3 that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now it goes on to describe what happens. Nineveh, it says, was a very large city, 
It took three days to go through it. This is the capital city of Assyria. This is a big place. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's the whole message. Eight words in English, only five in Hebrew. Already, there's something kind of atypical about these prophetic messages. I mean, if you read Nahum's prophecy to Nineveh, it took three chapters, his entire book. Nineveh, or Jonah's prophecy, takes five words. You know, some have wondered if maybe this is something like what happens when you ask your kids to do something that they really don't want to do, you know. They do it, but... uh, They do just the bare minimum to get by, to fulfill the requirement. And I suppose there could be an element of that going on here, given Jonah's reluctance to do this in the first place. But what is probably even more likely than that is that given the way that Jonah is written, the act of giving the prophecy itself may be being intentionally downplayed here so we can see more clearly what the prophecy is actually all about. And we might even find some things here that we can glean that will give us some insight into what prophecy is all about. In fact, even in the words of the prophecy themselves, few though they are, there are some interesting nuances in the Hebrew that give us some hints that we might be on the right track here. You see, not only can this phrase, within 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned, also read, within 40 days, Nineveh will overturn itself which gives you a slightly different sort of feel for the passage. But the word translated here, overturned, is one that also holds counter-meanings, meaning that the translator needs to decide, based on the context, what the meaning of the word is. Depending on the context, this word can be used to signify the idea of destruction, or it can also be used to signify the idea of deliverance which already sort of gives you a different flavor for this passage. You see, right here, there are elements of ambiguity being injected into the middle of Jonah's expectations about what is certain and what is not certain about this passage. All of which fits right in with the way the book of Jonah seems to be purposely tampering with our expectations and the labels that we tend to put on people and things and that sometimes get in the way of what God is trying to say to us. Because, you see, it's not just Nineveh that's going to get overturned in this prophecy, but a lot of seemingly certain expectations as well. Although for Jonah, it may have felt as much like destruction as it did deliverance. Well, let's see what happens. The story goes on in verse 5. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. We lose the impact of really what those couple of words are telling us here. The Ninevites believed God. The capital city of the original axis of evil that had been noted for brutality and cruelty and practices that makes anything you can see or imagine today pale in comparison. 
on the first day of Jonah's three-day preaching tour, believe God. Jonah doesn't even get to finish his campaign. One day in, and they all believe God. This is truly unbelievable. I cannot even express to you how unbelievable this is. In fact, I can't even begin to tell you how many people I talk to all the time, some of whom not very far from here, who are absolutely certain that this kind of thing just does not happen. It can't happen. Don't count on it happening. Well, okay, maybe the common people. Maybe it happens for them. I mean, maybe they're tired of the brutality, and maybe they don't like living under the leadership in Nineveh. But surely not the government and its leaders. I mean, you can be sure that whatever their version at the time was of mean-spirited forwarded emails or cable news, there would have been plenty of people urging them not to foolishly waste their time with people or governments who are inherently evil and were never going to change. Right? But then there's verse 6. Verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Well, what do you know about that? You can almost hear the thud of the jaws hitting the ground of the people who first read this passage in the book of Jonah when they got to this part of the story. This was completely unbelievable. Once again, it's not just Nineveh that is being overturned here, but all of the preconceived attitudes and expectations that insist on painting the world in contrasting hues of neighbor and enemy, of us and them, rather than children of the same God who are just as in need of grace and as tough as it is for us to swallow sometimes, just as deserving of grace as we are. It's a tough message. Of course, whether this kind of overturning feels more like destruction or deliverance depends a lot on the context, mainly in the hearts of the hearers and maybe in the hearts of the messenger as well. Let's see what continues to happen. Verse 7. Then he, the king, issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And so according to the custom of the time, they express how serious they were about their repentance, even to the point of making the animals participate. And you know, if this wasn't such a serious kind of thing that's going on in Nineveh in this thing, it would be comical to try to picture in your mind what it must have looked like for animals wandering around in sackcloth during this time of repentance. It's an amazing picture. But what is most amazing is that in spite of how limited the king of Nineveh's understanding of the god of Jonah must have been, it appears that he heard the most important part of the message much more clearly than the chosen prophet Jonah did. And he was the one delivering it. Notice what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and we will not perish. 
what the Ninevites heard was what Jonah did not want to hear. And that was the possibility of grace. Grace for them. So into what appears to be a pretty hopeless situation, the king of Nineveh, who knows, injects a certain element of uncertainty in favor of God's grace, which you know is probably not too bad of a kind of uncertainty to live with from time to time. It's interesting, isn't it, that in spite of Jonah's amazing experience of God's grace just a short time before, for a prophet who had turned and run away and abandoned his responsibilities, while he understood what grace meant for him personally, on a personal level, apparently it had not dawned on him that that same grace might be available to everybody else. Everybody else. At least if it does dawn on him, it doesn't come up in the story. And yet somehow, even though it appears that Jonah did not fully get it yet, and even though the Hebrew words that are used here in the passage indicate that the Ninevites probably didn't have a very well-developed picture of who the God of Israel really was, God's spirit nevertheless is at work in their hearts and was able to speak enough grace to the Ninevites to awaken the possibility of hope so that not only did they hear the message, but they also heard the God who sent it. And they responded. And God met them where they were. The scripture says in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, so what do you think? Is this good news? You know what Jonah prophesied did not come to pass. Or did it? How's your sense of certainty doing this morning? You know, if it feels to you like the book of Jonah is messing with your head a bit this morning and causing you to have to think about things in a different way, whether your impulse is to embrace that or to resist it, then I'd like to say congratulations. The book is doing exactly what it intends to do. That is the purpose of the book. How annoying it is, though, to think that those we have identified as our enemies, even when we have good reasons to do so, are just as valuable to God and entitled to his grace as we are. Period. Much less be called by God to be the ones whose job it is to go and let them know about that. Ouch. How embarrassing to discover that despite all of our assumptions and expectations, that sometimes they hear more clearly and respond more appropriately than those of us who should know better, particularly when we are the ones who claim to take seriously the teachings of Jesus, which makes it even more clear. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, and you know where it goes. Maybe all of this is part of what Jesus was getting at when on one occasion he tells some Jews who were trying to demand him to give them a sign to prove that he was the Messiah. He said, you know what? The only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Makes you wonder. But not only does the message of Jonah mess with the way that we think about and label and categorize each other, 
It also invites us to reflect a bit on our view of prophecy, perhaps, as well. You know, too often we have a tendency to frame our understanding of prophecy as if God were simply some sort of super psychic who is out to amaze people with his ability to predict the future. And so we wind up thinking that our security then is found in knowing all of the details about what is going to happen. Once we know how it's going to turn out, then we can feel secure because we have control of all the information. But what if, what if, prophecy is not so much about portraying God as the master fortune teller who is out to satisfy our curiosity with insider information, and maybe more about a God who cares so deeply about us that he wants us to be certain, that he wants to assure us that he will be there for us in the future. A future that we can be certain is going to be overturned in amazing ways and maybe even some unexpected ways, but ultimately in ways that will be in favor of his kingdom. But whether it winds up looking like destruction or deliverance, either for us or for those people that we may have written off as beyond hope, may have a lot to do with how we respond to the God who gives the prophecy and who invites us to follow him into the future, knowing that we're secure with him as we go. And so just maybe, just maybe, the book of Jonah sounds a note of caution about allowing our sense of certainty to be more wrapped up in the details and the end-time scenarios and certain ways of thinking about things that may have gotten skewed a bit by our assumptions over the years than a sense of certainty that is grounded in the God who is most concerned about reaching out to others and sharing what he's like and inviting people to respond to him something to think about. In fact, the book of Jonah suggests that because God is indeed gracious, that there could be some details that might not work out exactly the way we assumed they would. It's kind of what's there. And who knows, maybe the whole purpose of prophecy is less about giving us ways to prove who is right about the details, and more about God's desire to redeem those who are lost, which, by the way, is exactly how God demonstrates who is right in the great controversy. All of which really should not leave us with any kind of uncertainty about the future at all. No kind of uncertainty that should leave us feeling anything but secure. To paraphrase an old saying, our hope does not lie in knowing the details of the future, but in knowing the one who holds the future. One who is abundant in grace. One who is always at work for the best possible outcome perhaps even a better outcome than we have imagined even yet. Some things apparently can change, depending on how we respond. But what never changes is the God that we respond to. And there's good news in that. And really, how sad it would be to read prophecy in such a way that our sense of certainty about how bad we think things are going to get before Jesus comes would cause us to miss opportunities to actually be the body of Christ in the world, to work to make things better for people and their lives, or to allow that to prevent us from seeing each other and our world, even the parts of the world that trouble us the most, as God actually sees them, as places where his grace and love can still be extended, certain of the God who sends us. And knowing that and sharing that, we have the most important part of our message. 
And who knows? Maybe in doing so, we might even have fewer moments of embarrassment about the reality that when it comes to the issues that reflect best, probably, our understanding of God's character and to which God's character speaks to the most powerfully, things like basic human rights, people going hungry in the world, caring for the sick, even environmental concerns, just a list of few, that often those who are considered by some as modern-day pagans seem to be more responsive and seem to listen better than some of those who seem to see themselves as God's people. Perhaps the book of Jonah still has something to say to the time that we're living in. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, what we see here in chapter 3 reminds us again that the grace that we experience extended to us is intended to spill over into the way we act towards each other individually and corporately, maybe even nationally, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. And that if there is a disconnect here somehow in our own minds, that God still invites us to allow him to bring healing to our own hearts as well as into the lives of others that we'd like to reach. As we become perhaps a little less concerned about being seen as right or somehow more privileged or better in some way, however you want to define that, and instead a little more willing to embrace the possibilities of the question, who knows? Maybe God can bring healing and grace to places that we've not even imagined yet if we're willing to allow him to do that through us. So what are you the most sure about this morning? For me, anyway, that's what I want to be the most certain about. It's the kind of certainty I would like to live with. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful this morning that as we come to know you, that we experience your incredible grace grace to us. And as we respond to that grace and allow it to change us, we pray that that same grace might fill us and overflow into our lives and our relationships with each other. Thank you for being patient with us as we learn how to do that and as we continue to grow in our desire to know you more and for others to know you more through us. That's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name.